I'm scared. So am I. What are you scared for? You've got the gun. A man and a woman alone and afraid. She is running away from life. He is running from death. People are trying to kill me. Robert Redford and Faye Dunaway in danger and in love in Three Days of the Condor. Rated R. Hey everybody, welcome back to 70 Movies We Saw in the 70s. Wow. Yeah. I'm now in this podcast, Scott, we do introduce ourselves. This my right. name is my name is Ben Reiser. I work at the University of Wisconsin Madison, showing people movies at UW Cinematheque and the Wisconsin Film Festival. And across from me is Scott Lucas. I, I don't do any of those things. But uh, I'm jealous every time you tell me that's what you do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We have mutual envy of our of our careers. That's good. That that's a good thing between pals. Mm-hmm. What do you got? What's that shirt you got on there? Oh, this whole thing. Uh my oh. Kill Bill premiere from the uh Alamo in Austin. Wow. It was uh it was quite a party. I wasn't there, but somebody gave me this shirt <laughs> who was there. That's probably the best way to experience that. Have we ever yeah. talked about Kill Bill? No, but I am a Kill Bill 2 guy. I am a give me Kill Bill as one movie and cut out the scene at the end of Kill Bill 1 where we find out that no, uh, her nope. daughter is alive. No, no. Why no, would no. you possibly want to know that her daughter is alive until she finds out at the end? What do you gain? Uh, uh, I don't know. Tension? Hitchcock? Hello? No. The only time What do you Hitchcock possibly gain from knowing? What do you which is possibly the, it, gain it, it, from... Knowing that there's a bomb in the suitcase. It's not the same thing. That's, a, it that's is one the sequence. Same thing. It's not it the, the same, same thing. thing. And it, it is also the best way to, to, to end that movie. It's like, oh, does she know her daughter's alive? Boom, the movie ends. Shit. It, it's kind of brilliant. Yeah, but if you just put it together as a single movie where you don't need a cliffhanger, you don't need something to take you into the second movie, you don't need but it. But it's... But it's not a single movie, Ben. It's two movies. But it was supposed I'm to be living a in the, movie. I'm living in the world that we live in. You're living in some I don't know. I of, hear tell that there is an official Quentin Tarantino. The whole bloody affair. Yeah. Yes. And I bet I, that that scene's not in it. I don't bet that. But I bet the scene where she talks about killing Bill at the beginning of Kill Bill, which is, to me, the scene that could go... Uh, I hear that's at the very beginning of the entire movie. Hmm. But my favorite scene and my favorite Tarantino scene is when uh, when Bud goes to work and and what's his face calls him into his office and says uh, <laughs> that hat, that shit kicking hat. Yeah. He goes, well, what are you telling me, Bud, that you're as useless as an asshole right here? Well, guess what? I think you just convinced me. That is the best scene. Yeah, it also always reminds me, and I can't remember which one came first, I think Magnolia, of all the stuff with William H. Macy being dragged into the office where he works oh, yeah. in Magnolia. Yeah. I think Magnolia was first. I know Magnolia was first. 
That's a movie I haven't seen in a while. I guess me too. Hashtag. But we're not here to talk about those movies, are we? Did you just say hashtag? Yeah, you said me too. I said hashtag. Oh, don't you mean symbol for numbers? Me too. As they say in the movie we're talking about, Three Days of the Condor. Mm -hmm. I remember a time before there was such a thing as hashtag and you would say that's the number symbol. And when people started saying hashtag, I was like, what, what are you talking about? What do you mean? And they would say, we mean the number symbol. And I'd say, oh, why don't you just say the number symbol? Well, why is the number symbol a hashtag? I don't know. It's, it's something to do with the internet, but I don't know. Well, it, it also means we're probably not as hip as we think we are. Oh, I know I'm not as hip as okay. I think I am. Good. <laughs> we're here to talk about Three Days of the Condor, which is yes. a Christmas movie, according to it, you, Scott Lucas. I think so. And happy Hanukkah, Merry Christmas. Yes. Let's get this going. I know it's only the third, but it is the beginning of Advent, which I, which I learned the other day. Oh, so I shouldn't have opened my two Advent calendar chocolate things on the first you, and the second? You should have not. It's this year it's Advent starts on the third. Oh. That is very interesting. It well is. let me just say one thing. I know people are probably dying to hear like what what's taking so long? What happened? What was the last you guys haven't done anything since Zardas? Well wow. in one sense of the word that's true. Yes. I don't know what I don't even know what word I'm talking about. But let me just plug here as long as it's the Christmas season. Scott and I did do something more or less the equivalent of an episode of 70 Movies on the 70s. We did a commentary track. That's right. For the Fun City Editions Blu-ray and DVD, I believe, of uh, T.R. Baskin. So if you're looking for sort of a lost 70 Movies episode, you can think of it that way. If you're looking to just see a great Candace Bergen movie. Uh, that you never saw or heard of before with great Chicago locations and a really charming commentary track by ours truly. Us truly? Us truly. Yes. Uh, get yourself a copy of T.R. Baskin. We truly. We truly. We we blabbermouths who, who do talk to each other every goddamn week. But Does that count as one of the, the 70? Not, not, not officially. It's, okay. it's an unofficial, right. I would say. Right. Although right. I have read... I've read commentaries about the commentary that talk about it sounding like a podcast. And I'm like, yeah, it's like an right. it's like an extra window on your advent calendar. Yes, yes. Okay. <laughs> the bonus. So three days of the condor, which I realize is is the second Sidney Pollock Robert Redford movie you and I are talking about on this show. It is yes. I realize that too, but damn it, this movie is great. It is great, and and this might actually be a movie that I actually did see in the seventies. Oh, good! That was my first question to you: was when did you first experience this thing? Uh, you know, on on television, uh, many 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 times, and like so many times before I actually even knew what it was. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And and I remember like when I finally did know what it was, I must have seen it three times. And I was just kind of like, oh, no, this is a great movie directed by Sidney Pollack starring Robert Redford. And and I didn't put any of that together. And then, uh, you know, loved it, watched it. It was definitely during the day when I put together what it was. And then I remember seeing it, what, on AMC? And it was letterboxed. Mm -hmm. And then that's when I started realizing what a well-made movie it was, Mm -hmm. you know. I think Sidney Pollack was 
was along with Woody Allen one of the first to like insist that this movie be shown that way. So yes, yeah, so like Woody Allen with Manhattan, you know, they were like, hey, this is the way it's supposed to be shown, and they were very precious about it. I think Pollock actually sued some government like in Sweden or, or, or something that was showing it cropped. 1997, the Association of Danish Film Directors, on behalf of director Sidney Pollock, sued Dansmark's radio on the grounds that cropping the film for television compromised the artistic integrity of the original film and that broadcasting the film in a reduced screen version violated, violated Pollock's copyright. But they were unsuccessful because Pollock doesn't own the film rights to Three Days of the Condor. Good try. But it was believed to have been the first legal challenge to the practice of panning and scanning widescreen films for terrestrial broadcast. I didn't even know that uh, there were any legal actions. I would like to open up a legal action uh, and sue movie theaters for not masking films properly <laughs> in this day and age. I can't get into it. I can't get into it with you. <laughs> I, can't, I, just, I just fucking got into it with some kid the other day. I can't oh, get into you? it with you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> of course. Uh, what, you know, a day without me getting into it with some kid at AMC is, you know, it's not a day. Right. It's like a, it's like a day without oxygen. Right, right, right. Um, now, this movie was produced by Dino De Laurentiis. When I grew right. up... When I grew up, and probably when you grew up too, because you're not that much younger than me, by the way. No, no, uh, no, Dino De Laurentiis was always considered... He was always like a punchline, you know? Right. And I don't know why. King Kong. So this was before King Kong. Right, but it was King Kong because Laurentiis... Because of the quotes that people had from him, they were he was like people see the monkey cry or whatever, and people loved you know making fun of his accent. <laughs> I don't remember that. Oh, we yeah. got to do King Kong on the show one of these days. Uh, I think before King Kong, he was fairly respectable. Oh, you like, know I what mean, it is? He well, did eight and a half, right? He did. He did a million things. He did yeah. Death Wish. He did. Uh, he did Death Wish. No, he did a bunch of stuff. He did a bunch of Italian movies. But you're right. King Kong was kind of a turning point. 75, he did Mandingo, King Kong, uh, The Serpent's Egg, which was Bergman. He did uh, Mandingo into King Kong? Oh, yeah. That's following a train of thought, no? Yeah. Yeah. Mandingo directed by Richard Fleischer. Oh, my God. Richard then, Fleischer, I, I was just watching that movie uh, the other day uh, with uh, George C. Scott, and it was great. The The car movie where they, they go underwater. Oh, The Last Run. Yeah, it was terrific. Talk about a good-looking movie. Holy crap. What yeah. a great-looking movie. Yeah. Sven Nickfist. Yeah. yeah now yeah. talk about a great-looking movie, this movie. And we've talked about... Owen Reisman. The cinematographer before. Oh, man. Oh, man. And we've talked about him in the context of he's the guy who shot Taking a Pelham 1, 2, 3. Right. Uh, and this is right up there in, in terms of really capturing New York in the 70s in in a way that uh, just rings so true to me as somebody who was in New York in the 70s, but just is sort of like, yes, this is another quintessential Streets of New York. Uh, the movie starts... Uh, unfortunately, with the Dave Grusin opening title music, which Thank I you. mean, let's we, there's no real getting around it. It's like it's Thank like por it's like porn music. I mean, it's, it's like it is, it is, it is like cheese ball, waka waka guitar, 
Rhodes piano in a hotel lounge. It, 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 for me, it undercuts the seriousness of the movie. It does. And there's no, I can't, I mean, I've, 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 I've been trying to come up with a rationale. Like, I mean, really it just dates the film. I mean, yeah. they were, there were thrillers that were using jazz scores. I mean, Clint Eastwood did it all the time. And Don Siegel, I think play Misty for me probably has a yeah. similar kind of thing. I think dirty Harry might have like a, a jazzy, score to it but this one i know the gauntlet does yeah but this one is just wrong it's just stupid i agree although after the main theme it's pretty innocuous you you know it we never get back to the full cheesiness of the main title theme once once that's out of the way now was that because Sidney pollock was always just so you know had one eye on the commercial aspect of all of his movies do you think and he thought that this i mean the the score of all of his movies like when you think of tootsie another dave grusin score by the way he worked with dave grusin all the time a lot yeah so i think this was on purpose i don't think he walked away going we didn't nail that one dave no no i've seen sydney pollock saying saying nice things about this score yeah (laughs) um You know, and and whatever. I mean, I guess. I mean, the thing is, I think that Dave Grusin was a big a big name, you know, and he and he did a ton of of movie soundtracks. Yeah, I feel bad talking bad about him. Yeah, whatever. I just okay. you know, listen. I I think you know everyone. All these famous film composers have their bad days, uh, but not as bad as this. No, this and, and this is three days. <laughs> this, this, three days of the Grusin. Yeah. Gruesome, gruesome. But um, I was going to say that it starts with that terrible music, but it also starts with one of my favorite shots in the whole movie from Owen Roisman, which is uh, Robert Redford on this motorized uh, right. bicycle. I guess it's called a moped. Is that what a moped was? I I I don't know. I mean, I, it, it's an electric bike, right? But it can't be electric. I don't think there was. I think it's like a gas-powered I think it's got like a little engine on it. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely something like that. Uh, it's a moped. It's a great shot, and it's clearly Redford in traffic, cruising down the street with this thing. And it reminds me a little bit of the end of What's Up Doc when Ryan uh, O'Neill is pedaling up and down the streets of San Francisco on a, on a delivery bike, and or, or, or actually Barbara Streisand's pedaling and Ryan O'Neill's running next to the bike and then jumping yeah. onto the, which is an amazing stunt that Ryan O'Neill actually did. But when I see this movie now and this shot, I think, what a wasted opportunity that we never get back to that bike and there isn't like a chase scene used with, with Redford on that bike. Think of how great right. that would be. Yeah. Well, that might have been in six days of the Condor. Might have been with the original book length but you know the original book doesn't take place in new york at all it's all in i've the heard that washington DC suburbs yeah, yeah. Uh, well, to me it's crazy that they changed it from six days of the condor to three days of the condor not because it's better and it's more compressed but because they didn't have the budget i mean i i, I read that but i can't really believe that you that, know what i mean that's got to be a we joke we don't have the budget for six days <laughs> it's three yeah, I mean, let's not fool ourselves. This is a big budget movie. They yeah. didn't, you know, they pulled out all the stops for this thing. Yeah. But but the truth is, so the first 15 minutes of this movie were introduced to this huge cast of characters, and they seem to be working at some kind of 
right. doing like weird <laughs> esoteric academic tasks in a very Tony looking brownstone. Yeah. The, the, the ice bullet. Yes. Is, is, is great. The ice bullet, which, you know, Redford's character attributes to Dick Tracy, but to me, it reminds me so much of these Encyclopedia Brown stories I used to read when I was a kid. Did you ever read those books? Those little, like, one-minute mysteries or two-minute mysteries? Come on. Of course. I love Encyclopedia Brown. Underrated detective. Yes. Now, I don't think Encyclopedia Brown was ever investigating murders. No. (laughs) No. (laughs) But if he had, there there would have been an ice bullet case for sure. I love how she goes right right to, uh, you know, his girlfriend goes right to Dashiell Hammett. Yeah. No. Yeah, yeah. Dick Tracy. Yeah. You can just see Pollock and Redford saying, oh, let's throw out Hammett out there, but say, no, we're we're, we're talking Dick Tracy here. Yeah, that's yeah, our yeah. That's our hip reference. No, I, but, but I love what you said is the fact that we're introduced to this big cast of characters and they're about to all be blown away. Like, mercilessly, too. Like, yeah. It, it is a bloodless cold gunning down that they all receive within minutes. Yes. And I would posit that this is a great movie, but this is a great movie that really draws all of its power from that first 15 minutes. And that's what I remember about this movie, seeing it as a kid at night and seeing the first 15 minutes and being like, what in the fuck is going on here? You know, uh, and the film does a brilliant job in a way that you never see films quite able to do that these days. This sequence uh, does a beautiful job of sort of delineating all of these motherfuckers, uh, you know, with like one or two lines of dialogue, including Redford, who I guess there is no like masculine version of the manic pixie dream girl. But I mean, if there was, that's Redford. Like within two minutes, you learn that, well, first of all, he's pretty good on a gas powered bike. He, he dresses uh, great. Well, yes. Amazing, that, amazing dressing. This, to me, is the iconic uh, the, the hair, outfit. The hair, the hair, jeans, the, the glasses, sweater, the, the shirt jeans, tie, the, sweater, the glasses. That, that and, coat. Yeah, that gray flecked, like, what do they call it, herringbone? The herringbone blazer. It's, uh... Well, that yeah, that, and then later on when he's wearing, like, that, the the jacket, the... With the, yes. the, with the uh, collar. yes. But we learn that he's 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 the the smartest detective in the room. He's the one who figures out the ice bullet just by overhearing right. bits and pieces of a conversation. He's right. a green thumb. He walks in and he's like immediately to the professor, what's his fuck? He's like, you better move that plant closer to the light because it's got this thing. I'm like, okay. He knows that it's going to rain. He's a meteorologist. He mm-hmm. uh, He's a mechanic because he's fixing the whatever copier machine or whatever that mimeograph right. thing is. Like yeah. he's working on the wires. There's nothing. And then later on, we realize that he's like a master of like uh, telephone services. He can use that. You know, there's and he's the script great, is just perfect. A great marksman. He, he is. He is the ideal. Robert Redford. Yeah, yes. But when you watch him, though, I, I, I just want to say in case we don't come back to this. How much has old Brad Pitt taken from this performance? You know, Everything. it's just, it's, it's, it's all there. Like Robert Redford is Brad Pitt's North star and I, and I'm, I'm cool with it. I think that's great. And I would say that the, that the North star of that North star is the, is the reliance on um, eating 
both their characters are constantly eating throughout all their movies, especially like in the Oceans movies. Brad Pitt's always eating in every scene. And don't ever Red, notice that. Redford starts this movie with a like a, a breakfast pastry in his mouth. As soon as he walks into the office, he grabs it, and while he, he's taking off his coat at the thing, he's got that in his mouth. Right, Later on, right. he gets a hot pretzel. He's he's doing a lot of like mouth acting throughout this whole movie. Like you 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 tend to like watch his mouth as much as any other part of him. You know he he does like a lot of like weird like signifying of different moods with his mouth, like anger yeah. and fear and. Uh, but yeah, but they both do this fucking eating thing. Hot people can eat. Yeah, in movies, and it looks great. Well, we it takes them. It takes it. It 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 works to like make them real people. Like, you know, you would never believe that Robert Redford could just walk around unencumbered by people running after him, like trying to hump him. But, you know, if he puts a hot pretzel in his mouth, it's like, oh, he's just another schmo uh, in Central Park. Right, right. Yeah. No, that that pretzel scene in Central Park is great. (laughs) He's like, I'm figuring it all out and and I'm getting some nourishment. Yeah, and it, but I, he does the same exact thing at the beginning with this, like, I don't know, not a croissant, but it's like a, I don't know, like a morning bun or something. Like a Danish. Actually, it looks like a Danish. A Danish. Yeah, a and morning he, bun. <laughs> <laughs> but I started thinking of, when I realized, oh yeah, this is another Sidney Pollock and Robert Redford thing, I started thinking about this movie if they had also dragged Barbara Streisand back into the fold and she had the Faye Dunaway part. I mean... Barbara oh. Streisand is a Brooklyn girl. Like, that would have been a whole other way to go. I think it probably would have been too distracting given that they were coming off of the way we were. But I don't know. I like that alternative universe where it's Streisand and not Dunaway. Right. Right. You live in a lot of alternative universes. I do. You? That's what. That's yeah. all I do, really. Right. <laughs> like, what would, it, what would have happened if this movie had an all-black cast? And... Yeah. <laughs> Which, by the way, set in Chicago. Let me get this in here right now. You know, for all of their liberal preening, there's two black characters in this movie, and and the first one is this. Well, barely, but the first one is one of the two kids who's looking to steal Robert Redford's bike at the beginning, and the other one is a guy who's just minding his business, hanging out with a bunch of friends in the lobby of a building. And Redford's like, "Hey, man, I need you to help me break into a car. Don't tell me. Don't tell me it's the first time you've never done." I'm like, dude, what the fuck, assholes? That's, that's what I thought, too. He's like, five bucks, okay? Yeah. <laughs> Great way to represent. Good yeah, job, yeah. Sidney Pollock. Good Jesus. point. What, what does he say to the kids that are about to steal his bike? Oh, it's a great line. What's on your mind? What's on your, something on your mind? <laughs> yeah. What's on your mind? <laughs> They're like, oh, we're thinking about stealing this fucking moped. That's what. Because yeah. you don't seem, because you're, you're not going to use it. What's weird is like five minutes later after he leaves, he looks at it. Right. Like this could be a good getaway vehicle, but he then leaves it. I can't quite figure but out he, what he's figuring out. He realizes head. if he gets on it, somebody might be watching and they'll mm-hmm. realize it's him. That it's him, right. Yes. Yeah. And so in a way it, it it's brilliant that we, we want him to get back on that moped, but he can't. Yeah. Although there's a lot of back and forth about like he's smarter than everyone in the room and then he's not like, you know, they say don't go back to your apartment and he pretty much, you know, right away goes back to his apartment and luckily there's a woman out there who says, oh, your friends are there waiting for you. Right. Um, but yes, anyway, it, 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 it that all I want to say really is that that first 15 minutes is an absolute masterpiece. And I remember seeing it as a kid and being totally freaked out and like that's. 
I mean, there is no greater hook than that first 15 minutes. And it's so, um, you know, compact. It's so economical in the way that mm-hmm. it introduces all those characters and then kills all those characters. And you also yeah. get to see all of those assassins. You get your first good look of Max von Sydow. Um, mm-hmm. And that dude, Hank Garrett, who uh, later Great. on plays the uh, mailman. Yeah. Uh, did you know Hank Garrett was a comedian and a wrestler? I, I didn't, but I get it. And did you know that he broke Robert Redford's nose during their fight scene in this movie? All right. Hold the phone. You break Robert Redford's nose and you just get off scot-free? I that don't think he right. did. He he tells the story on the Gilbert Gottfried podcast. It's a great episode if people are looking for other podcast options. Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast is a wonderful podcast where Gilbert talks to all these sort of old Hollywood character actors. And uh, there's a Hank Garrett episode, and he tells a great story about accidentally breaking Robert Redford's But I can't remember what... Um, how that affected shooting. I mean, I guess they, I'm assuming they must have had to stop filming for a while or yeah, I don't know, long enough think. to get his nose. Or maybe he didn't actually, maybe just bloodied his nose and he just blew it into something. E, maybe, maybe. Well, you'll, that you'll, scene, by the way, seems uh, like the most Hitchcockian scene of the movie and specifically torn curtain. Yeah. It's very torn curtain. Although they don't have, it doesn't take quite as much effort to kill. No. Uh, Hank Garrett as it does uh, in Twin no. Curtain. But yeah. So everybody gets blown away in the first 15 minutes. And then what, Ben? Then Robert Redford has been out to lunch. He's got sent out to lunch by Professor Literally. Lap. Lap, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and he comes back, discovers that everyone's dead, including his girlfriend, Janice. And here's another uh, bone I have to pick with this movie. Is that um, if this movie was, re- and maybe it's not a bone to pick with this movie, but it's an interesting thing. I think the difference between movies in the 70s and movies if they were being remade or made for the first time today. I don't think there's a version of this film that can happen today where Redford's character doesn't get his revenge on Max von Sydow at the end for murdering his girlfriend in the first wow, right. 15 minutes of the movie. Never even occurred to me. I mean, those guys become sort of friends at the end of this movie. Right. right. <laughs> and you can't imagine right. that happening in like John Wick or something like that. Right. I don't think. I, I, I don't think women matter in this movie. I don't think they they have a lot of, let's say, agency. Like it, this is a very man movie. Yeah. It, like like you say, for all of, you know, their liberal bona fides. This is this is a bro movie. Pollock and Redford were bros, and this is as broy as it gets. Absolutely, and you know, and and um, Faye Dunaway's whole character in that whole situation is even more troubling. Jesus Christ! <laughs> if I have a bone to pick, it's it's that. Yeah, I mean that you know the, the the sort of hostage rape scene is 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 shot in the most glamorous Hollywood style. <laughs> lighting. I mean, there's there's few shots that are as beautiful in the history of movies as that one shot of the sort of silhouettes of Redford and Dunaway backlit. 
And talk about mouth acting. I mean, there's a there seems to be like an eye light that's aimed directly into Redford's mouth, and there's some kind of like mirror right. or something. It's like amazing, <laughs> right? Right. And then that love scene. It's like the Thomas Crown affair. It's yeah. like <laughs> it's like what's going on? That love scene also, in a strange way, reminds me of the Parallax View, which was, by the way, written by Lorenzo Semple Jr., the guy who Amazing. wrote this screenplay, too. He wrote it with David Raphael. David Raphael? David, David Raphael, who I think was yeah. like Sidney Pollack's longtime uh, credited and then uncredited sort of script doctor. What a um, guy, Lorenzo Semple Jr. Let's just pause and think about him. I mean, he created the Batman TV series. Mm-hmm. Yep. And by the Batman, I mean Batman. Yes. Yes. Yeah. The real Batman. Batman. <laughs> 66 Not the Batman. Batman. Yeah. No. Yeah. Batman before everyone took the fun out of it. And then he writes this and Parallax View basically in the same year. Right. I mean, and, it's crazy. And this one is based on a book's book, but I don't think Parallax View is. I think Parallax View is its own thing. Whole cloth? I, I don't know. I think. I think so. Uh, yeah. But interestingly, with both of those credits, uh, there isn't a lot more that's all that exciting from him. He uh, really, he really uh, kept in that superhero lane for uh, a disconcerting amount of his career. Well, by the way, he wrote the De Laurentiis King Kong. <laughs> yes. Yes, I mean, there's a lot. You can see King Kong brewing and all those shots of the World Trade Center. You can see yeah. King Kong coming. It's on the horizon. Yeah, there's a lot of the World Trade Center in this movie. Uh, yeah. An amazing amount. And it's relatively new. I can't remember when the Trade Center was built. Was it 74 or was it earlier? Oh, wow. That makes a lot of sense because it looks absolutely beautiful in yeah. this movie. Did you ever visit the World Trade Center? Um, I didn't, but I had a lot of business there. Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah. Okay. All my tax records for for the first part of my life are, were in there. I My uncle worked at the World Trade Center earlier in his life. I once worked for this strange company for a summer that did, like, laser light shows. Uh, when I was working for them, their big project for the summer was to do a laser light show that spanned from one tower to the other. Mm -hmm. like they had lasers on both towers and they had some sort of midpoint between the two towers at night where they were going to have all this cool laser light shit. Uh, and so I was up there for that. But anyway, yeah, nice yeah. to see it. So he comes back, he finds everyone dead, including his girlfriend, and then he runs away, grabs his, uh, a payphone. I always, I always get sentimental about payphones, yeah. especially in New York. I spent so many years trying to find working payphones in New York as a kid. Uh, uh, Don't do yeah. that anymore. No, no. No. It's a whole new world. Uh, he calls into the CIA and this dude, the major... Uh, who is like a sort of like a glorified switchboard operator, I guess. Mm -hmm. uh, this dude who's in a wheelchair, the major. And I think it's interesting that this character's in a wheelchair, but there's never any real reference made to it. It's just um, <laughs> nice. It's a nice representation of disability. Right. <laughs> right. That, that's their liberal. The liberals, yeah. yeah. 
So yeah. at this point, it basically becomes like a, a Hitchcock wrong man movie, like 39 steps yes. on through North by Northwest. This is what we're getting. And I'm here for it. I absolutely love the wrong man of the Watergate era. And it happens to be Robert Redford. Right. With great I mean, hair and it, cool glasses. It, yes. This movie does everything right. I mean, you know, if the, if the flaw in this movie is the plot of it, the sort of the particulars of the MacGuffin, which, right. which they spend a lot of time on, but the right. more time they spend on it, the less sense it, it falls makes. apart. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't, I, I, I couldn't tell you. I, I mean, I'll just say right now, like, Why? Why are why? Let's just say there's this agency within the agency, and they're sending each other coded messages through books. It why? Make any sense. Especially when they know they have a team of people work actively working on decoding these books. So, so one of the people in the agency. So it seems like everyone's in the CIA is working alone and going rogue in the CIA. So. One of the guys in the CIA sees that Redford is on to one of his plots and decides to kill them all. Mm-hmm. But nobody else in the CIA knows, right? Am I, am I getting this correct? Right. Do you know how many times I had to watch this movie to figure that out? Until yesterday. I get the sense towards the end that maybe John Houseman does know, or when he learns of it, doesn't care, and is like, yeah, Dude, that's John Houseman and- knows everything. There is nothing in the world. He's God. There's right. nothing in the world that that guy, I'm not going to say didn't know, because I know he's still alive somewhere. There's nothing that John Houseman <laughs> doesn't know. Well, I guess the question is, what does what is Cliff Robertson's character's role in this movie? Is he... He's, he's a pawn. And I think the scene with John Houseman demonstrates how little he matters. I mean, when he's around Redford, he, he seems like he knows it all. But when he's around Houseman... He doesn't know anything. And that's when you realize, like, wow, that guy's got a Donald Trump come over. Well, let's talk about that for a minute. Jesus Christ, it's amazing. As you know uh, how I feel about people in their hairpieces. Yeah. Yeah, First of all, (laughs) Professor Lapp has herpes, uh, Mm -hmm. which we find out when he's dead on the staircase and his toupee is like a, a step below him. That is so great. That is a great, great detail. Uh, but Cliff Robertson, I see all the time people talking about this amazing comb over, but is it? I feel like that's a whole piece. Wow. A comb over piece? Come on, Ben. Why but would someone do that? I just, I don't think I've ever seen a comb over that's that full. Like, he's got, like, like if he's... It, it, if he's able to, to, to Gene to, Wilder, yeah, but Gene, I think even Gene Wilder, maybe Gene Wilder comes close, I guess. Gene Wilder, Donald Trump, Cliff Robertson, boom. Pick one more, and we've got to comb over Mount Rushmore. Yeah, I think there's a lot of shots where I buy that, and there's a couple of shots where I'm like, that can't be his real hair. It's but maybe, but it's, it's amazing. But he's a great foil for R- Redford's hair. I mean, it really is sort of the battle of the the hair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I I think, and I don't know this to be true, but uh, there was a miniseries 
in the 80s that he was on. And I think if you compare his hair in that to the hair in this, I think you'll see that he abandoned the comb over and went with the piece later on in his career. Uh, I don't know, but check it out later and I want to go back and watch Obsession, which I think was maybe a year earlier than this. Mm -hmm. And I want to compare this to Obsession. I'll bet the comb over is raging in Obsession. I'm just, uh, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm impressed. Like, I wish I could have a comb over that was you can that full. No, you can I, do it. You I, can I, do it. You can do it. Start today. <laughs> yeah. To quote the Gorilla Biscuits. Going back to this cinematography, it's so perfectly beautiful. It's, it's not. It's it the the framing, the lighting, yep. all that stuff. But I think what I miss more than anything is the way that. 35 millimeter film look the colors of it yeah uh the color palette i guess they call yeah. it the color grading now you never see movies that look like this anymore even alexander Payne's the holdovers which is you know clearly modeling itself as a 70s yeah. movie i mean it looks good but it, it doesn't look like this oh uh, well, well here's the thing i mean we, we've talked about owen roisman before on the show and and you you i believe you said this that you know he was known for this gritty style, right? There's nothing gritty about this movie. It looks amazing, and also this transfer that's on mm. on Amazon right mm-hmm. now—it's one of the best transfers I've ever seen. Uh, I mean, I seriously think I need the 4K of this. Yeah, it, it, it looks so so good. I couldn't get over it. I just—it was like like a 35 millimeter movie was playing, you know, on my my screen I, I watched it projected and it was just like this looks perfect yeah it really does it makes me want to show it at cinematech just so i could see it on oh the god you've got to well you've got to wait till next year um but 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 there's nothing gritty about it it's and and my question is is it the perfect combination of 70s style and classical hollywood style or or what's going on there i do think that that's what it is because i think and did Roisman shoot um, the way we were? Well, I don't know. We're gonna have to look that one up. Uh, because it there's a, I don't there's, think he did. There's I, a I couple really of gra- glamour shots in the way we were that remind me of that shot I was talking about with Dunaway and right. Redford. I uh, think that might all be Sydney. Yeah, uh, I believe that. No, cinematography Harry Stradling Jr. So it wasn't, right. it wasn't Roisman, but, um, but you know, you know when um, Robert Redford is mansplaining Faye Dunaway's pictures to her, her photographs, uh-huh. and he's like, "Is no, that what he's not, doing?" Well, yeah. I, that, that's what we right. call it these days. It's not quite winter. It's not fall. It's in between. He finally settles on November. November. It's November, yeah. and she's yeah, like so that, deep. And she's like, rape me now because you, you, know, you, you read the secrets of my photography. Right, right, right. There's a couple of metaphors in this movie I want but, to try to get into with you because I don't understand what they are. But uh, I remember that speech, you know, when I was a pretentious high schooler, like, yes, it is November. And I, I think probably for a while, November might have been my favorite month. Yeah. Basically because of that. But the but what I was going to say is that the other thing about this movie is that the uh, there's these outdoor scenes 
Especially there's this one where Robert Redford's kind of hiding in this outdoor stairwell waiting to, to for the meat in the alley that's going to turn into this trap for him, you know? Mm. Um, it looks to me a lot like the cover of Freewheeling Bob Dylan. Like that mm. thing yeah. with Bob Dylan and what's-her-name walking down the middle of the street. Like, that's what this movie right. looks like to me. And I'm like, yeah, this is that yeah. perfect kind of... This movie feels like November or December, yeah. whatever it's supposed yeah. to be. But It's, it's November, it's, yeah. Oh, well, it is December. Jesus Christ. Well, yeah, but that, that alley scene is, is the, the guy getting shot in the throat. And I grew up thinking that this was a PG movie. And I remember, and I just realized, well, I just learned a couple of days ago that it's R. Mm-hmm. But I was like, wow, they could get away with a lot in PG movies in the 70s. Yeah. Yeah. Is all, the, all the President's Men is PG, right? Yes. Now, that says fuck a lot for a PG movie. Right, but back in the 70s, they had a much smarter approach to things, which is like, yes, violence and sex are one thing, but language, who the who cares? Who the fuck cares? Isn't it there's amazing? No, there's no violence in all Isn't the presidents, man. Isn't it amazing how, how far backwards we've gone? It is it's amazing. incredible to me. It is amazing. Um, the uh, We should give a shout-out to the fact that Redford... I can't even remember what building he's trying to get into. Oh, he's trying to get into the building of the one team member who didn't come to work that day. And then we find out he got killed in his apartment, but he's hitting all the buzzers and the name on the buzzer is Argento, which I guess I'm assuming is a Dario Argento. I I never noticed that. Uh, What's what's the guy's name? Heidelberg or something? Yeah, Heidelberg, right. Heidelberger or something like that. Heidegger. 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 Yeah, that's it. I love that name. Yeah. I wish that was my name. Not my last name. My first name. Hi, I'm Heidegger Lucas. Heidegger, Heidegger Lucas. Pretty good. Pretty good stage name. Not bad. So he gets in there. He's dead. And that's when he realizes he's well fucked. And then, and then he meets his buddy, who he does know, in the scene in the alleyway. Mm-hmm. Yes. Now that's pretty good stuff, right? It's a great. Br- it's a break great that down scene. for us. Well, it's a great. There's a great setup to that scene where uh, Wicks, who is the the first sort of fall guy villain, uh, you know, he's like the first act villain. What? what mm-hmm. That's. It's interesting to me as I and I'm just thinking of this now that like every act of this movie has its own sort of main bad guy. And maybe that's what is confusing to me about this movie. And the only sort of muddled thing about this movie is the plot. And like, you know, I think the goalposts keep shifting as to who it is that we're supposed to be rooting against. You know, and I guess that's the point of it is that he's in the middle of this conspiracy and he can't figure it out. Nobody really knows what's going on. And by the end of the movie, I think if you when you when they finally think they know what's going on, I still don't really think they know what's going on. But. Right, but um, I think that's the point of th- that they're trying to make about the CIA is like even they don't know what's going on. Right. And, you know, they're like, we play games. Right. And he's like, yeah, but people are dying because of these games. And it's very interesting that we're doing this the week that uh, Henry Kissinger dies. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, I mean, what, what better movie to think about this guy, this yeah. fucking murderer who played games than, you know, Three Days of the Condor, or any of the great 70s paranoid thrillers. Yeah, a great way to celebrate the 
way past its time death of Henry Kissinger. Yeah, there's no justice. There's no justice in the world, in the universe. It doesn't exist. Who is it? Does Redford get to say fuck the Wall Street Journal in this movie? I feel like that's another like Pollock and, and Redford wanting to stick it to the Wall Street Journal. Yeah, but he's just about to do all the president's men. Right. And and then and then um no, he's already done at President's Men, hasn't he? Or is that the no. next year? Oh, next Jesus. year. Wow. 76. Wow. Uh I like when Wicks, I like when when we first meet Wicks in DC and somebody comes in and 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 says uh you know, the team there's the team got murdered and Wicks says that's New York. Maybe somebody somebody got mugged maybe. <laughs> that's a good one sticking it to new york because i mean it is you know it is you know i complained earlier about uh all the black people in this movie being associated with some kind of petty crime or theft but it was but you know manhattan felt dangerous in the 70s walking around it was it was rough and that alley you know you would never see an alley look like that anymore in in manhattan but uh but that yeah that looks like 70s. That looks like behind the ho- a hotel in the 1970s. And, and Yeah. So, so this famous Faye Dunaway subplot gets going right about now. Talk to and, me about its famousness. Well, I, you know, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's famous because it's pretty troubling. Uh, but it's also famous because they talk about it in Out of Sight. Uh, George Clooney. Right. And Jennifer Lopez. Right. Uh, you know, another, another not as troubling relationship, but like Steven Soderbergh almost used it as a way to sort of cut to the chase and undercut any argument or that you might have about Clooney and Lopez deciding that they're hot for each other. He used this movie, three days of the condor. Why did I say that? Of course we talk about three days of the condor. What's wrong with me? Uh, (laughs) he uses this movie to like sort of say, no, 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 it's happened before. It happened in 75. But also, I would say, as as eye-rolly as, as this subplot is, especially some of the particulars of it, and, you know, it, it's also far from the first time we've seen this exact plot line. I mean, Hitchcock used it all the time, and, sure. you know, there's a whole, I mean, I, it's probably rare to find this kind of a thriller where there isn't a woman who's been like taken in by a guy on the run and she doesn't against really believe her will, him, but right, right. against yeah. her will, you know, in comedies also, you know, right. And Faye Dunaway, she does keep saying it, this isn't fair. This isn't fair. And, and she's right. And he agrees with her. And it's, it's the thing about the subplot. Like for me, you could get rid of it and I wouldn't miss it, but it does get really soulful. Sometimes, you know, they'll say things and, and she's so great. She'll do things that you're like, I'm glad it's in the movie. Right. Um, well, yes. And we, we, were, we just started to talk about the sex scene. And I was going to say that, strangely enough, and because of Lorenzo Semple Jr. Uh, being the common screenwriter, it reminds me in execution a little bit of the indoctrination or test scene in Parallax View. Because it's cutting back and forth between their uh, little, you know, isolated shots of them having sex, but it keeps cutting back and forth to the her pictures, which are like a, you know black and white pictures, kind of right. like what Warren Beatty gets to, you know gets yeah. shoved in his face. 
but it's also got that sort of happy go lucky Dave Grusin music, which also yeah. sort of is like fucking the music Dave Grusin. Yeah, <laughs> that kills me that this is your your parallax view. <laughs> but I want to know. There's two met. There's two things that I you think are- sitting in a chair, being shown the fate done away, yeah. Robert Redford scene yes. over and over until you capitulate. Yeah, I do. I absolutely do. Um, but but she the, the thing that gets her into the sack, yeah, and the the sort of negotiation that they have, I don't really understand it, but it's got something to do with her secret stash of pictures that she's taken, pictures that are not like the pictures that we're seeing all over. And he's like, I want to see these pictures. Right. And she says, I don't know you that well. And I don't so want to fuck. know you that well because I don't think you're going to be alive much longer, which is a great line. And if Great line, it, great line. If for that line alone, I'm happy that this subplot yeah. is in it because it's like a really creepy, like, whoa, uh, line. But what is, what the fuck are they talking about? How literal are we supposed to take these? By the end of that conversation, I'm like, wait, is she saying she's taking like nude pictures of herself that she doesn't share with? No, I, I, think, I think they're pictures that are too personal. And there are windows into her soul and very being. And like, she only brings out, you know, she's an artist and art is about showing other people's stuff, but there's some stuff that she saves for her and and she doesn't know them that well. Right. It's like if you had a secret stash of songs that you've never played for anyone. You know, it reminds me of, if we can talk about the eighties for a second, uh, you ever seen Pink Cadillac? Yeah. It's a great movie. <laughs> yeah. Pink Cadillac is a great movie, but there's a scene between Eastwood and uh, Bernadette Peters where she's talking about him and, you know, she's talking about the bad guys in that movie are a bunch of white supremacists. Sure. And she's talking to Eastwood and she says, you're better because you could be one of them if you wanted to, but they could never be you. And I just think... You're going to be dead soon from Faye Dunaway is on par with Bernadette Peters telling Eastwood they could never be one of you. That's I'm high sorry. praise. It's, 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 just a, it's, <laughs> it's just a thing jutting out. Okay. So I don't know what this negotiation that they, that they do really. I mean, he, she's like, how much, how much do you want? And he's like, I only want like a night's worth. I, he's basically saying right. like. I just want to go to sleep. Let, I want to go to sleep. Let's. We need to have sex and go to sleep, and then I promise I'm leaving in the morning. And she's like, "Okay, that that works for me." Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> how many times has Robert Redford had that conversation? <laughs> All right, I'll have sex with you as long as I can go to sleep and leave in the morning. <laughs> right, right. But let's back up a little bit because. And by the way, uh, Faye Dunaway was totally down for this part like she had no she she doesn't look at it as a thing like where you know she was exploited or given the short shrift she was like i wanted to be in a movie with robert redford forever and the idea that robert redford would tie me up and have sex with me i have no problem with i mean that's coming from faye dunaway yeah well and it's in the movie too in that he's um he, doesn't he say to her, like, you haven't asked me to untie your hands? Yeah, I, th- I think so. Yeah. But she's a little she's a little pissed about it the next day, though. Yeah. Because, yeah she goes back and forth. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. She's, she's a little bit schizophrenic. <laughs> I mean, which is perfect for Faye Dunaway. Sure. Sure. Uh, but she's got to uh, get ready for network. 
But I don't want to go past the scene where he goes to visit Sam's wife. Oh, uh, wow. Maybe the, what a great scene. A sequence, that entire thing. Yeah, really culminating in the elevator sequence, which is really, you know, after that, after but that when he, opening. He walks minutes. into Sam's wife's apartment. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. talk about that. Like, he realizes that someone has called, and she's waiting for him to come home, and she doesn't know anything. And this, and this shocks him, right? Yes, he's, he's doing a lot of mouth acting here, too, where he looks at the table, and he's got the four settings, and he real you know, I think it really hits him that, that his, his friend is dead, and his girlfriend is dead, and that this dinner for four that they were talking about a couple hours ago is... They were all getting ready to do is will never happen. Right. He's in an alternate universe for a second. Yes. And and he doesn't have the courage to tell her what's up. Um, You know, he never does tell her that Sam's dead. Right. Uh, Although maybe the look as he's sending her up in the elevator to the neighbor's apartment is supposed to sort of like, you know, I think maybe maybe the realization, you know, comes over her face just as she's. Zooming up yeah. out of frame, yeah. But anyway, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a great sequence in the apartment and him taking the time. Uh, you know, this film is full of like wonderful little details, including one that I'm about to ask you about because I don't quite understand. But the, but when he goes into the kitchen and he turns off the burners on the stove because she's still got dinner cooking, like that's a great little moment. Yes, yes. Um, Thank you. And there's a there's a wall in that apartment that every time I see it, I'm trying to figure it out because it looks like the the whole wall is a bookcase with books behind some kind of frosted glass. But I also think it might just be like a sort of a painting, like a like wallpaper or something that's meant to look like that. Uh, I couldn't figure out whether those were actual books or just. Uh, I think that's where. 4K. Gene Wilder's Gene Wilder's dad is. Um, his secret library <laughs> is behind there. Gotta pull Stand the back. Hold the other candle. Uh, <laughs> now listen very carefully. <laughs> Here's what I don't understand. Why doesn't Max von Sydow shoot, shoot him that in the kid? Right in the hall. No, no, no. no. Why oh. doesn't he shoot that kid who like presses all the buttons? <laughs> yes. Shoot him in the head, man. And by the way, if you're not a kid, what, that kid what's the is point of having something? <laughs> exactly. When you're in your 20s, Kids. you're not pressing elevator buttons. Exactly. Anymore. That kid shouldn't be <laughs> trick or treating. Why have a gun with a silencer on it if you can't shoot somebody for hitting all the buttons in an elevator? Yeah. That kid's, and that that kid's there kid. for his grandfather's birthday. So, I mean, he really should be on his best behavior. That oh, kid. he blows, man. Yeah. <laughs> He's going to college. But why doesn't Max von Sydow just shoot Redford in the hallway while they're waiting for an elevator? As soon as he sees him, he should just shoot him and just walk down the staircase. He would be done with the whole fucking thing. He messed up, and and he later on he he admits it. He's like, "That was that was on me. You get this other guy for free. <laughs> right. I, I I should have shot him." But that kid. But I think me up. Well, I think that he makes that he he gives him the other guy for free even before he goes to see Redford at that. Okay, but. So the elevator scene, which I absolutely love, is like a classic, like, you know, we've seen this a million times, but this is a beautiful rendition of it. The guys on the elevator, they realize they're going to, you know, right? there's there's death in the air. But then there's this bit with this glove that Max von Sydow finds on the the floor of the elevator and asks 
Redford if it's his glove. And Redford pulls out his gloves. He's got these two gloves. They're, it's not his glove. And Whose okay, glove is it? Whose glove is it? Because it's not Von Cito's. Because in another, oh, I love the color grading on this film, you can clearly see that Von Cito has a brown glove and this thing is a, a black glove. Uh-huh. But <laughs> then there's this weird... And it's a it's a charming detail, but I start feeling like we're it's supposed to mean something, not in a literal sense, but as some sort of weird metaphor. He takes that strange glove and he hangs it over the little yes. handrail on the inside of the elevator. And there's a close up of him doing that, right? And it's probably as simple as something like if they needed a cutaway for whatever no. reason in this scene. No, 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 no. That's a detail. That but what, is, so what's it about? What is that glove signifying in this movie? What I'm going to throw... I'll throw a the theory at you that signify? I just came up with as we're talking about. Okay. This ought to be good. Eventually, he is going to almost... He, he, he pitches this idea to Redford at the end that he should become an assassin. He's good at this. Right, right. He respects him already. So maybe this glove is the is the symbol of a um, freelance assassin. And Redford's not willing to take this glove at this time of the movie. But he hangs it there in case Redford wants to come get it later and pick up the mantle. Of- and maybe that's why he doesn't shoot him. Maybe at this point, Cedal sort of sees a kindred spirit or somebody he hopes could be a kindred spirit. And he's like... This one, this guy's too good to shoot. Right. I want to see where he goes. I mean, this is this is interesting to me. I want to see how this plays out. Right. And I will say, going back to that first 15 minutes and my complaint about Janice's death not being avenged at the end of this thing, I will say that I do love one probably my second or maybe even first favorite exchange of dialogue is, is, is Janice saying, I'll scream. And Von Cito saying, I know. No, she said, I won't scream. She says, oh, I, she won't says scream. I won't scream. I won't scream. He goes, I know. Oh, I thought he's saying, I will. I thought she's saying, I will scream because I think she, he wants her to get away from the window because they don't yes. want to break the glass of the window when they shoot right. her. And I thought she says, I will scream or I'll scream. Like, even if you don't break the glass, I'm still going to make a scene. Hold on. Mm-hmm. I'm playing it right now. I'm going to rewind it. All right. Would you move from, from the window, window, please? Pardon? Would you move, Would you from, move the from the window, please? Uh, that uh, he's dressed as a oh, he's been a mailman the entire movie. The other day, Hank Garrett. Yeah. It, I won't scream. She says, "I won't scream." Those are the subtitles. Yes, I won't okay. scream. All right. So she Which says, "I won't scream." Which to me is so much better than "I will scream." Yeah, well, I, I mean, I think right? it's, I, I like it fine. I think it's creepier if she says, I'll scream, and he says, I know, like, I don't even care. Like, yeah, I know you'll scream. But she says, I won't scream. And right. he's like, oh, I know. I know. I know. It's uh, pretty good. So, but, it, but the fact that he then sort of turns his face away, like he doesn't want to see this, is like a little bit of humanity almost in Von Sydow. Yeah. And so maybe that's the excuse for not killing him off at the end. I mean, uh, to be fair, he's Condor has had a hell of a three days, and his mind might be swimming, <laughs> right? And he he might not even think about the fact that like this is the guy who did it, you know? Right. He doesn't know if he was there. 
Right. But, and I also think that by the end of this movie and probably that the idea throughout the movie is that it's not, it's not that kind of movie. It's not a revenge movie. It's not a James Bond movie. It's not like a secret, you know, it's a, it's a, Hey man, everything's corrupt. And right. this is, this is our, our entry into this world of, of, of governmental, right. I spy corruption and inhumanity. And, and the decade was lousy with these kind of movies. Right. right. And, uh, you know, uh, other than like Alan J. Pacula's Holy Trinity of paranoid thrillers, you got Clute, you got Parallax View, you got all the president's men. There's tons of these movies. Why is this one so good? So entertaining. And so rewatchable. Well, they all are, aren't they? I don't know. I don't know that all of them are. I mean, there's so well, the many ones that you just named parallax view is and president's men is those movies are unimpeachable. Okay. Right. Winter I, kills. I, I would say is not on that. Calibre. Winter kills. God bless you, Tarantino for putting it out, but it is not three days of the condor. It's not, it's not in the same league as this movie. No. And I, you know, I've loved marathon man. Uh, yeah, that's also a rung below these. I think that's like a little. Lesser. It's 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 in it's within the spitting distance. But but there are so many that just don't do what this movie does. And right. you know, I, you got to give it up to Sidney Pollack. You oh, know, absolutely. He, for years, I thought he was a hack, but he's not. <laughs> no. <laughs> but you thought Frank Perry was too. So <laughs> I, I didn't know Frank Perry did anything other than Mommy Dearest. Right. I'm so you like, thought he was a hack. I'm like, wow, this guy is amazing. Yeah. That is one of the great late, late in life cinema discoveries of my life. But I mean, I would say that this movie is as great as it is and as rewatchable as it is for all the obvious reasons. Sidney Pollack, Owen Roisman, Robert Redford, Faye Dunaway, Max von Sydow. I mean, they're all, you know, at the top of their game. And it's also... Uh, because of a million little things that we've talked about some of, but that there are these, you know, there's this craftsmanship behind it. The, uh, going back one more time to this moment where Janice gets killed and, and, it, and it happens throughout the, this entire sequence of everyone getting rubbed out. There is the sound of those silenced machine yeah. guns that, yeah. is, that is exactly the same as the sound of those electric typewriters as they're decoding these yeah. books that's in the background. And the sweep. This is so cold. Every time Hank Garrett shoots somebody, he does it in a sweeping motion. So it's like almost like those typewriter things going from left to right. It's like, da 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 Janice right. is dead. And it cuts straight to the computer uh, paper and it's going da 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 And it's like, you know, doing whatever translating thing. It's drawing this beautiful parallel movement and sound from the bullets to the electric typewriter you know which is something that like the first five times ten times i watch it i'm not even conscious of and then i see it i'm like oh but at every level somebody's thinking about yeah. how to put this movie together it's smart it's a smart movie and 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 the thing about it is the people in the movie are smart and th they think of smart things it's just the kind of movie that you you want to be around these people. I, I don't know. There's, there's really, there's really something about it. And there's something to be said about Pollock's type of cinema where it's like, yes, I want to be commercial, but I don't want to be mind numbing about it. And I, I, to say that we don't see that kind of thing anymore is 
you know, store-bought and shop-worn, but we don't. We don't see this kind of thing. And I think it went with Sidney Pollack. I mean, what a great producer of movies. You know, he, he was terrific. And every time I'd see his name producing a movie, I was like, oh, all right, I'm in for something. And I was. Absolutely. Uh, you know, it's funny because you're right. You think of uh, you think of Pakula and you think of Sidney Lumet, you know, and, and then and then mm, Pollock right. is somebody that you don't that I don't typically put into that category with either for conspiracy thrillers like this, because because it really wasn't Pollock's main thing at all. You know, thrillers no. are few and far between, and this is by far the best of them from Pollock. You know, right. uh, nobody's going to be raving about whatever his other couple. Yeah, The Firm. Right. Um, I don't mind The Firm. No, it's fine. And, and, and plus, you know, uh, he was one of the producers of uh, The Talented Mr. Ripley, which, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, when I saw his name on that movie, I was like, hold on. This guy's up to something. And, and as an actor, what's your Great. favorite Sidney Pollack performance? Uh, Eyes Wide Shut. Or Tootsie. Better than Tootsie? Maybe Come not. On. Tootsie, Tootsie, Tootsie is fantastic. destroys Eyes Wide Shut. And, well, and a shout out to husbands and wives. When he, he's like, I'm out of my great fucking too. mind. That is so good. You don't like him in Eyes Wide Shut? I think he's fine in Eyes Wide Shut. He is not Sidney Pollack of Tootsie, though. Sidney Pollack of Tootsie steals that movie. So apparently Sidney Pollack has three cameos in this movie. Which he does. Which is a sentence that I read. I didn't look into what those cameos are, but I tried to figure them out. So I have my list of what I think the three cameos are. Go. Do you know them for sure? I do. I think he's the cab driver who almost runs yes. over uh, Redford at the beginning. One. Ding. I think he's the neighbor of Kathy who... Says hi to her when they're walking down, when she first arrived. And she should have said hi back. Right. Ding, number two. And if I had to guess, I would say the third one is he's doing a voice acting thing as her boyfriend on the phone in Vermont. Ding, ding, ding. Oh, Very good, Ben yeah. Reiser. You were so sharp. Damn. Ah, you're like You're like Robert Redford <laughs> in Three Days of the Condor. But, you know, it's not as obvious as like when Albert Brooks. Yeah, he outdoes. He outdoes. Alfred Hitchcock by, you know, yeah, beats him. Yeah, yeah. It's great. Because neither one of those visual appearances of him are particularly obvious that it's him. No, it, 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 it doesn't look like him. It, it's crazy. I was like, that's got to be him. It's either him or Don Siegel in that cab. But it also makes me wonder, like, did, no, nothing. did he? <laughs> yeah, I don't want to talk about nice that. little callback. <laughs> Nothing for my Don Siegel callback. It's great. But do you want to tell the whole story of? Uh, no, I don't. <laughs> I just, I just want to chuckle from you. That's all I want. Yes, I don't know. Sorry, I was too busy like thinking yeah, about why he's in the film two or three times. And I'm wondering, was he always planning on doing more than one cameo, or did he throw himself into all kinds of scenes, not sure what he'd wind up using or not? Like, why is he the cab driver and the guy on the street? Obviously, they could have they could have found other people to do one of those roles. Sure, I'm wondering how many Sidney Pollack cameos in this film got left on the cutting room floor. Like, you know, he might be in the CIA at some scene. Right? <laughs> yeah, he's one of the assassins. Yeah, yeah, he might have yeah. been Hank Garrett's stunt stunt double. I I would look at that restaurant deli scene. That's a fantastic scene, and I want that. I guess it looks like it's a pastrami sandwich that she then wraps up in a napkin and says, I'll save this for you. That's a good-looking sandwich for us. You want that sandwich? Yeah, okay. All right. 
Okay, so here's one other thing that I looked up because I was like, what is this a reference to? John Houseman has this great line. He says, I sailed the Adriatic Sea with a movie star at the helm. I know this. So I found this out today, too. But you go ahead. Who, no, you who's go. he talking about? He's talking Sterling about Hayden. Sterling motherfucking Hayden, yeah. who was in the OSS under an assumed yeah. name. Who the hell yeah. ever knew that? Did you know that? I, I found that out from this movie. And the fact that they don't say Sterling Hayden. It's great. Like, you know, it, it, it's right up there with a, another great movie from 75, Jaws. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Something was, something was in the water talking about like old missions. And, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah in yeah. the sea. Yeah. You know, I just was doing a bunch of, re- I, I saw Sterling Hayden and something else. Oh, and Criterion had all those documentaries about yeah, him. That Sterling Hayden documentary is off the charts crazy. Yeah. But and so but and so I learned all about the stuff where he, you know, did give testimony to the House on un-American activities but really felt awful about it yeah. for the rest of his life. But somehow I didn't I didn't hear the OSS stuff in in those documentaries. Hmm. Maybe they're in there and I just sort of breezed past it. I don't know. Maybe. Uh, so this movie ends with this kind of zinger that I didn't go and do the research, but I feel like I've heard this, that this is the end of like two or three or maybe more other movies where the checkmate is that I've, I've sent all this information to the New York times or the Washington post or some other thing. And so do whatever you want. The story is already out there, Mm. but I think it's charming that that was a thing back in the day, like that, that could play as like, Oh yeah, you got him. It's I blew you up. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Whereas, like, <laughs> Whereas you now. can't end a movie like that these days. Nobody gives a fuck. <laughs> Nobody cares. Right. Oh, that liberal rag! I wouldn't believe a thing. Yeah, that's yeah. really maybe that's the the most telling thing about where we are today. Yeah, it's depressing, but but you you, you can't gloss over Max von Sydow's final speech. No, go ahead. Which which is also really famous. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a Seinfeld. Episode, yes. <laughs> yeah, with the mail with the mailman. It got a lot to do with Newman, but like I think it, Newman tells Kramer, he's like, "This is how it will happen." You know, I mean, th- this movie, y- you don't think of this as a movie that's really. This isn't on the list of movies like The Godfather that have bled into popular culture, but it is. It totally is. Mm-hmm. It's a quiet, quiet, tall classic. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, there's, why, why, Ben, why else would this transfer look this good and so much care be taken to this movie? They didn't have to do this, but I mean, this is, this is like Lawrence of Arabia levels of taking <laughs> care of this movie, you yeah. know? Like, well, and, and, and it's interesting that's, that brings something else up about Seinfeld is that, that. You know, whoever whoever was writing those Seinfeld episodes seemed to be also obsessed with conspiracy movies. There's that whole JFK thing that they do. Have you seen an interview with Larry David? <laughs> yeah. That guy screams obsessed. Yeah, he must love that Cheryl Hines is married to mm. Kennedy. Yikes. <laughs> All right. Well, I think uh, I think we're good, right? Really? Have we wrapped this up? Well, maybe we haven't. Uh, 
I mean, I just think that this yeah, movie, it's a Christmas movie. Yes. And that all comes crashing home at the end when Santa's there and they're, they're singing that song. Mm-hmm. What is the song? God rest ye merry gentlemen. gentlemen. Yeah. yeah. Well, I would say about this movie, um, a sort of a signature move of this movie and, and they do it at least three times and it pays off every time are these sort of shocking uh, murders that that happen, you know, when you're not expecting it. It, it feels like, you know, the first one where the where the elderly sort of secretary right. receptionist gets blown away, blown away. Yeah. And I, I don't know whether to laugh or cry. At the, I mean, that is brutal. Yeah, and, and the thing with the flying. smoking cigarette on her chest and, and yes. Redford eventually, finally, like, taking it off and, and flicking it elsewhere. It's a great detail. The um, What feels like a happy accident when Redford reaches for the gun and knocks stuff off the desk and then is walking backwards and kind of almost trips over the, the, yeah. uh, the desk the organizer. Uh, that seems like something they couldn't have planned, but it works beautifully uh, and sells the moment. Uh Realistically, but then uh, Sam getting shot in the throat in the alley is a shock, shock killing. It's great. And then the end when it when they're at Atwood's house and uh, Joe Bear uh, comes in to disarm Redford and then shoots uh, Atwood right in the head. Point it's blank. Another great, yeah. another great. Like, oh, I didn't see at, this coming. And Redford's <laughs> reaction to it, the way he jumps back, and goes ah, <laughs> it is great. It is great. It is one of the great Robert Redford moments. Yeah. And Redford, the thing that they do that starts that scene where Redford's sitting in the dark and he's playing a, a, a loud like rock and soul. <laughs> right. Cover and you're like, thank God he's not playing Dave Grusin. I got you where I want you. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. That's great. And the way he reaches behind the chair to like pull the, you know, pull the needle off the record without looking also right. just just a wonderful little detail um yeah you know it's, it's almost like a john carpenter ending i suppose the very end of the movie like sort of the freeze frame and well it's a 70s ending you know it it's the way movies should end you know you're like oh you know uh it's a it's a cliffhanger but you know people didn't think that there's going to be another one Although I, I do remember that at a, some point starting to happen, like, you know, and I remember it annoying me. People are like, oh, there's going to be another one. It's not over. You know, I, I don't remember what movie it was. And I was like, there's not going to be another one. That's just the way a good movie ends. You know, it right. sends you out of the theater going, oh, it's not over for them. It's over for us. Right. Halloween. Never right. should have been another. One. Well, there was another one. Yes. Right. But I'm talking about movies that clearly there wasn't going to be another one. Everybody would always say, there's going to be another one. It was probably right. because of Halloween. Yeah, it was because of Halloween. Yeah. Well, and also, even within a movie, the whole idea of the sort of vaguely supernatural, or not even supernatural, killer seemingly dead, and then coming yeah. up. Yeah. You know, Thanks, Halloween. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that got... What is it? What's that movie? Fatal Attraction. Uh, Red Eye. Is it a Wes Craven movie? With Cillian Murphy? Cillian Murphy on the plane. The end of that movie. Killian? Killian? Yeah. I haven't seen that in a while. I've been thinking about busting it out. No? 
Not good? Yeah, no, Pretty it's good. good. But I mean, it's, it's got one of these endings where they go back. To, I want, um, If you're going to watch it, I won't go too much. Yeah, don't, it, don't, don't do it. Don't but do Killian it. They've gets all killed got that. many times. They've yeah. all got that. Yeah. yeah. Stepfather. Yeah. Oh, man, Stepfather. Wow. What a movie. <laughs> what a movie. Written by Donald Westlake, right? Yeah, that sounds right. Crazy. Yeah, this is, I, you know, this is one of those movies you got to put, put it along with, you know, uh, taking a Pelham, uh, just as smart, super entertaining, popular Hollywood movie, you know, that you just wish there was more of them. And, you know, maybe we're going to get that. Maybe we're going to get that with, you know, with all these quote unquote with all these Marvel movies, quote unquote, tanking, even though they're still taking in billions, uh, taking in my money. (laughs) Yeah. Maybe something's around the corner, you know, maybe, uh, maybe something is going to happen. Uh, you know, you can, you can draw a line to people getting sick of musicals that had dominated the fifties. And then you, you get halfway through the sixties and they're like, yeah, I've had enough of this shit. Paint your wagon somewhere else. And then we get the 70s. So maybe we're going to get something. Not quite on par with that, but maybe a couple of years of something good. I'm ready for it. Bring it. Yeah. yeah. Bring it. That would be great. That would be really great. There. Uh, one other thing. Is that the world's... And I was thinking about it watching it again today. I was like, God, this is just insane. It doesn't feel right for her character. It's like the world's filthiest car, the world's filthiest Bronco, the windows, especially since it's been raining, you know, it's raining on the first day of this three days. Yeah. How is it so caked in, in mud and filth? I mean, it's probably got a garage. Looks great, but yeah. That building's got a garage. Maybe. Oh, reminds me of this other beautiful shot towards the beginning where a, a car pulls away from the curb and there's all this rain puddles on the ground and you see Von Sydow's reflection in the puddles well, and then yeah. the camera pans up and you see him in the flesh. Just a beautiful, beautiful shot. It's a great movie. It is a great movie. Wow. So, and it is a Christmas movie in the fact that it was, um, well, it wasn't. It didn't it, it was probably still in the theaters at Christmas time. It, it opened in New York like at the end of September of seventy five. Okay. So let's take a look at some other movies that were playing in New York that week, and then lament over what what a. I mean, it's not so bad. We, we we've got a new uh, Christmas classic in theaters right now. So I mean, it, it, it we're doing okay. What are what what's what's our new Christmas classic? The holdovers. Oh, okay. Yeah, sure. I mean, absolutely. I thought you were going to tell me. I mean, me I, I've been in the I've been in the 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 seasonal mood ever since I saw that movie. I was just yeah. like, oh, yeah. And I saw it, it on thirty five after oh. after seeing okay, Cooley High. <laughs> it was just like I was like, what decade am I in? And bring uh-huh. on the toys. By the way, um, I thought maybe you were talking about the new John Woo movie, which I haven't seen. Oh, wow. How great is it that there's a new John Woo movie in the theater? Why am I doing this with you? Why am I not watching this movie? I don't know. Damn it. All right, give me 10 more minutes and then you can go see it. Okay. All right, so here we go. Here's the New York Times. Am I going to move Swept away? Holy crap. 
Oh, yeah. You want to talk about troubling. <laughs> yeah. So troubling Madonna had to do a remake. That is the most troubling thing of all. But, I mean, look at the rave reviews for Swept Away. I mean, people loved this fucking thing. Wow. I mean, you know, I had never even heard of it. Oh, yeah. Uh, oh, A Pain in the A. A Pain in the A, starring Lino Ventura and Jacques Brel. Here's me. I didn't even realize that Jacques Brel was an actor and was in more than one movie. I always just thought he was just a fucking song, a songwriter. What the Sorrow and the Pity at the Sutton. The only one who's in the audience is Woody Allen, apparently. Uh, dude, at the Walter Reed Theater at the Baronet, look at this double feature. Clockwork, Clockwork Orange, Orange and Deliverance. Wow. That's that that's good stuff. And well, just look like, at this what, one is little 75, strip. This is 75? Yeah, because everything Clockwork kept getting Orange re-released. Clockwork Orange is 71? Yeah. Yeah, they would re-release movies every year. This is before VHS. You either had to put them back in the theaters or people weren't going to see them except on TV, which were, you know, cut. But just look at this little strip ad just for Walter Reed Theaters. Clockwork Orange, Deliverance, Nashville, Jaws, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, and The Exorcist. This was but it's just also like, playing at the Baronet up there. That is, it's the same thing. It's like, okay. it's, the right. same, it's the same theater. They just have two ads on the same page. Sorry, for don't ask me. the non-New York guys. So then there's this other Monty Python that like, and now for something completely different movie that was showing a pain in the ass, which I want to see, which I've never seen, uh, a great looking, uh, Harry Reams movie called every inch a lady. Uh (laughs) Pretty good. Uh, Alina Vertmuller double feature love and anarchy and the seduction of Meanie. Russ Myers. They were really into the Lena Vertmuller. Oh yeah. At that time. That's crazy. She was the biggest thing in art house cinema at the time. Really? I had no idea. Oh yeah. Uh, Russ Myers super vixens was showing all in its eighth super week. Claude Chabrol. Claude Chabrol's just before nightfall, which I'm sure is great, but I haven't seen it. Now, this is what I want to hear about. What is this? Flossie? Yes. Flossie delivers what Emmanuel promised. I'm there? So it's X-rated there. Exquisite photography, pretty Pretty people, people. fully consummated consummated sexcapades. In case you were wondering whether these sexcapades were going to be fully consummated or not, worry no more. Yes. (laughs) Listen, I went to see a movie last night and it had like great... Sexcapades, but they weren't fully what I would call fully consummated. So I, it left me wanting. It was like a more of a. Oh, you should go see Flossie. Yeah. Oh yeah, Flossie is it fully consummated? It, it is. It really is. All right, so here's a full page ad for um, Three Days of the Condor, which I first want to point out that this picture that they use in a bunch of these posters of Redford in bed with Faye Dunaway, except even in color. Her hair is darkened. Her eyes are closed. It almost could be uh, Janice. Like you, you know, maybe it's mm. maybe they didn't want to spoil the movie somehow, and so they they don't make it <laughs> yeah, obvious. As that's to who he's that's with. what they want. <laughs> they want to pretend that it's a a woman that nobody knows yeah. instead of Faye Dunaway. Hey, yeah, listen, that's what they did. Happened. That's what they did, Ben. Listen, who knows more about marketing, me or you? Oh, I you I never knew that it was in. Uh, a quarter. I, yeah, I didn't realize that. I don't. I don't think it is in some of the other posters. Okay. But, uh, all right. 
But I like, here's this first review. This so is it's amazing a, it's a, to it's me. It's a full page reviews. Condor proves that a principled film can be as compelling as Jaws, which, yeah. I mean, there's not even, they, it's not even an Pollock implication. And Redford like must saying, have loved that. Yeah. They're saying that Jaws is not a principled film. What does right. that mean? Right. I, it, it means that, you know, already they were like, you know, writing Jaws off as fluff. Which, you know, the, the thing is, is Jaws is political. It, it talks about how, like, the powers that be don't mm-hmm. care that people are getting killed. Mm-hmm. Jaws has something to say about the wheels of power in a small town, sure. And I, somebody recently was like, oh, uh, Spielberg visited the set of Zemeckis' used cars. And then he realized that, you know, you could make a film with politics in it. I'm like, that's total horseshit nonsense jaws is as political as any movie of the 70s wow coming on strong thank you goodness I, gracious. i'm here for what jaws a statement all right well god jaws. bless you should be but john houseman had like uh was like fifth build in this movie he deserves to be fifth build but yeah, he's great he, he's he's <laughs> it's not a case of last but least he no. is amazing he houses everybody. He's houseman. He's the houseman. <laughs> yeah, he does. <laughs> On the Adriatic Sea. Oh, man. God, he's uh, that guy. The Wind and the Lion with our friend Candace Bergen. Fresh off yeah, her. Yeah. her uh, Candy. Candy to her friends. Yeah. They were doing a, a, a psychic film festival, uh, which I was like, what is this? And then I see Yuri Geller was there. I don't understand what we're looking at here. Space Child? Oh man, this would have drove me <laughs> up the wall. It would have made me crazy. <laughs> uh, here's a movie. Sheila I, Levine. Here's a movie that? I've never seen. I, I remember the title. Sheila Levine is dead and leave, living in New York. Directed by Sidney J. Sidney J. J. Fury, Fury. Yeah, who was certainly a hack. Yeah. But what's interesting to me is that okay, here's a movie where clearly it's about this character Sheila Levine, and she's in on the poster. But there's no cast credits. I don't know who played Sheila Levine. Like, who is this actress? She's the star of your movie. Put her name in the fucking poster. Don't know. I I'm don't find know. Out. I want to find out. I want to get justice to Sheila Levine what right now. A time to be alive. Just be walking around downtown. That's what I'm saying. And you could just duck into beyond the door. Yeah. And Sheila Levine. Oh. I'm excited. I'm glad I looked this up. Sheila Levine was played by, drumroll please, Jeannie Berlin. No way. Yes. We got to see this movie. Yes. That's our next 70s movie. How do you steamroll over Jeannie Berlin being in your movie? Crazy. It's it's only PG, but it is a 70s, so it might have some bite. Plus the second feature. Second feature is Chinatown? Chinatown. (laughs) Look at this. Beyond the Door plus Night of the Living Dead. That's God what I'm bless. saying, dude. Let's go back. I know. I really. We're not. We're only halfway through this section. Cleopatra Jones in the Casino of Gold. I can't playing. anymore. I just. I can't. What, what's What's going on up there? What's the big movie that you will not? Uh, Love and Death. Woody Allen. Fuck. <laughs> With an I extra mean, attraction th- of Divertimento. That's crazy. There oh. is an argument to be made that Love and Death is Woody Allen's best movie. Really. I think so. Yeah, wow. it's it's amazing. Yeah, wow, it's great. But I, I'm shocked to hear you say what you just said. <laughs> On the other hand, here we go. Dog Day Afternoon. Boom. Shit. 
Shit. It's it's 75. 75. Wow. Right in the heart wow. of the decade, really. 75 is everything you need to know about the 70s. Take that, Barbenheimer. Jaws is in its fourth record month, the most popular film of our time. Yeah, that, that's clearly why Pollock and Redford had to take a pot shot at it. <laughs> well, they, in, they could in see fairness the, to them, they're they not see the saying it. On the wall. They're not oh, saying it. The, the they're credit. putting it at the top of their ad. They're saying it. Yes, but as we know, Pollock didn't even have the rights to this movie, so he had probably nothing to do with the ad campaign. Uh, if you don't think Pollock had something to do with the ad campaign of this movie, you're crazy. You're living in an alternate universe again. Part two, Walking Tall. I must have seen Walking Tall part two. Oh, of course you did. Bo Svensson. Bo Svensson. Directed by Earl Bellamy. Anyone but my husband. <laughs> uh, playing next to the Hound of the Baskervilles with, with Basil Rathbone as, That's as, amazing. Um, as, as Sherlock Holmes. That's my favorite Sherlock Holmes. Blazing Saddles. Playing with Mean Streets. Right, that's, now a du- go- that's a double feature I would love to Holy see. shit. Now I want to go back to anyone but my husband. Yeah. Okay. CJ Lang has a mind-boggling ability in a scene that will go down in porn <laughs> history. A mind-boggling ability. We can I, only guess what that I ability is. I want my mind is. boggled. Yeah. And oh, it, that quote is from Al Goldstein. <laughs> oh, if anybody would know. Is the editor of Screw Magazine. Oh, boy. Here's a great double feature, which I feel has been in every single New York Times ad we've ever seen. Deep Throat and Devil and Miss Jones. Classics. Can't keep them apart. Yeah. Okay, let's see. Is there anything else playing? Oh, yeah. I hope not. I can't take it. Nashville. I think we mentioned that There's so many porn movies. It's... Well, next Crazy. to my beloved Benji playing at the Guild 50th where I saw it. Yeah? Oh, yeah. Nice. Here's something I've never seen. And this was I held over in 1,500 love. theaters nationwide. James Whitmore as Harry S. Truman and Give Him Hell Harry, which I believe is just like a film of the one-man one show that he was doing, I think. Sounds terrible. I, I don't like any of those movies. That... What is it, that Nixon movie, that Robert Altman thing? Yeah, what's the one with Hal Holbrook as um, as uh, Mark Twain? <laughs> yeah, no, it's not for me. Yeah, uh, what's the one with, um, uh, who was that guy, that monologist who then like jumped off a ferry? <laughs> you know, know what I'm talking about? Uh, no. Sterling, no. Sterling, Spalding, Spalding, Sterling. Spalding Gray. Spalding Gray. Spalding Gray. I swimming in Cambodia I, with Spalding. I Gray. like. I like that. I, I like Spalding Gray. Eric Pagosian and Spalding Gray. I'm. I'm suckers. I'm a sucker for. Okay, here's my favorite ad from this whole week. I've never seen this before, and I want this. I want this poster in my room. This sort of art art house cinema ad for Texas Chainsaw, wow. and it says. Because of New York's Museum of Modern Art, the Cannes Film Festival, the New York Times, the Village Voice, and Rex Reed, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is back to become the classic chiller of all time. They knew. And then it's got like asterisks next to each, each one of those places I mentioned. So right. Museum of Modern Art selected it for their permanent film collection. Cannes invited it in May of 75. 
Yeah, New York Times called it the Jaws of Midnight Runs. Mm. Village Voice said going to see Texas Chainsaw Massacre at midnight has become a ritual in 1975. And Rex Reed said, make Psycho looks like, look like a nursery rhyme and The Exorcist look like a comedy. It's a horror movie to end them all. It's amazing to me when Rex Reed gets it right. Yeah. <laughs> but this ad is amazing. This I've never seen a Texas Chainsaw ad anything like. Look at this crazy line art. It's incredible. And, and that th- they saw what a piece of art that they had yeah. and they were trying to get those yeah. people to come in and check this out. Yeah. That's, that's, uh, that, that like, you know, makes that, that makes whole idea th- that, that they didn't realize it was art until years later. It's like, no, no, they, they got it right away. Well, right. And it makes my heart hurt because, um, I want to be back in 75. Yeah. All right, well, this whole thing has really depressed me, so I'm going to go see a screening of The Exorcist tonight at 6 o'clock. Ooh, are you? Yeah. Is it on 35? It is on 35. They recently found a print of it, and really? they're going to show it. And yeah. so um, it's, I'm hoping it's the original and not the it is the original nonsense? It's the original release version, and I've just been informed that it's got some fading, some color fading, so it's really going to be full experience all right everybody thanks for hanging out with us scott i'll talk to you soon uh good pick good pick yeah thanks thanks for that pick this was your oh pick. it was me okay <laughs> i can't remember all right merry, merry christmas, christmas. yeah